You're listening to a not-for-print podcast, independent Australian podcasting. This week's episode of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands was recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri and the Thurawal people. We pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, David James Young here, back for another week of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. Thanks so much for tuning in and checking this out. This is the first episode back since we recorded our live episodes at the Vanguard. Uh, If you were able to make it out for those, thank you so much for coming down. I really, really appreciate it. And if you were unable to come down, if you're in a different state or anything like that, not to worry... The episodes will be coming up over the next two weeks. So the first episode with Alex the Astronaut, Elfresh the Lion, and Bray Fisher will be going up next Friday. And the Friday after that will be the episode with Sarah Blasco, Johnny Mackay, and Pat Matthews. So plenty to look forward to. But you've already seen the title. You know what's about to go down. Folks, I am so, so excited to share that today's guest is Kate miller Heidke. Kate miller Heidke, a beloved Australian singer-songwriter, one of the most celebrated and prolific artists that we have. She's just put a brand new album out today. It is called Child in Reverse. She was also on The Masked Singer earlier this year, so she's had quite an eventful year, all things considered. This is the second episode of Bar Bands that was recorded over Zoom, over technology. I was here in Wollongong. Kate was in her inner north place in Melbourne, and we kind of get into all of it. We get into her early life as an opera and a drama kid, moving into playing around the valley, moving into playing at the Arias, going into the world of theatre, touring the world, and all these other random bits and bobs that have come up in the interim. This was a really, really fun one. Like, uh, it was great to pick Kate's brain about all of this. I've been a huge fan of Kate's for some 15 years now, and uh, yeah, it was a real, real treat to get to talk to her. Want to give a big thank you to Kate and a huge thank you to Mariam Dibb over at EMI for helping to set this one up. Really, really appreciate it. Won't keep you too much longer. Just a reminder that this podcast is made possible with the help and support of people just like yourself. If you like what you hear, please go and leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts or indeed wherever you get your podcasts from. If you have any friends that you think might be interested in what we're doing over here, please let them know. Word of mouth is a great, great help. And if you are in a position to do so, it would mean so much to have you as a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you gain access to bonus content playlists and a bunch of other bits and bobs from my work as a freelance music journalist, as a musician, and as a podcaster. I am intending to uh, be pretty active through November. It is Oz Music Month, and there is plenty to celebrate and plenty to talk about. So we'll be getting into that. 
So if that is of interest, please head over to patreon.com slash David James Young and we can take it from there. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash David James Young. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, barbandspod at gmail.com. You can hit up the Not For Print Podcast Network on Instagram at Not For Print Pods. You can hit up me on Instagram at DJYWrites. And you can follow along at DavidJamesYoung.com for more information, as well as all my friends are in barbands.com. Right, let's crack in now. This is Kate Miller-Heidke on All My Friends Are In Barbands. I am in the dark forest and I'm waiting for you. I'm in the dark forest, I'm in the dark forest I'm the witch, I'm the werewolf, and I'm waiting for you I'm in the dark forest, I'm in the dark forest I'm the vampire, the sprite, and I'm waiting for you The slasher, the child, I'm waiting for you Hi everyone, I'm David James Young and all my friends are in Barbands. Today I would like to introduce you to my friend Kate Miller-Heidke. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That is an absolute pleasure. Thanks for being had. (laughs) It's Thursday afternoon... I am in the greatest city in the world, Wollongong, New South Wales, Australia, and Kate is coming to us from Melbourne. Now, when did you when did you move to Melbourne? I, I'd always kind of associated you with Brizzy. Yeah, look, I'll probably always be a Queenslander at heart, but I, yeah. I moved yeah, to yeah, Melbourne yeah. about five years ago. How have you found it, like, you know, coming from such, literally the opposite end of the coast, you know, it can it can be kind of a culture shock, but I guess you've been touring there for years and years and years. It kind of would have felt second nature in a way as well. Oh, yeah. And look, there's so many people from Brisbane here. <laughs> Nearly every oh, totally, musician yeah. friend I have, you know, they moved down here, got lots and lots of friends. And my mother lives in Melbourne, so it, yeah, it, it does feel like home in a norm. Normally, I really love the culture. Obviously, it's completely devoid of yeah. culture at the moment. My <laughs> partner said Melbourne's gone from the culture capital of Australia to the picnic capital. <laughs> so, a bit of a step down. I know, right? But it's better than nothing. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Thankfully, actually, you were one of the very last acts that I got to see kind of pre-lockdown when you came to Wollongong back in the very start of March. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was right when the first sort of little rumblings of COVID were in the news. Yeah. In Australia, we had our first cases. Did that end up being the last show that you played? We played WOMAD a few days after that, which was incredible. It's like one of those festivals, festivals I've always wanted to play and... Yeah, that was our last gig and I look back at footage of that now and it just feels utterly surreal. Totally, totally. Oh gosh, everyone's kind of been coping in different ways and I guess, you know, having a record already ready to go and, you know, kind of peddling your wares in that respect has kind of been a kind of a welcome distraction in that respect. Have you kind of been occupying yourself with other things to kind of take the focus away from, you know, the kind of the doom and gloom. Everyone's kind of been different with that. I find I've just been taking it day by day. Yeah, um, yeah. It is especially bleak in Melbourne. I, I believe that no one who isn't here will really truly understand what it's been like yeah. to live under basically seven months of lockdown. And, you know, we still, I still can't have my mum over for dinner or a cup of tea and it's 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 just the most sort of disconnected that I've ever felt in my life but I probably because 
because of that, I have been turning to music a lot more than I even normally would. And it means a lot to me and just listening to more music than I have in years. Yeah. Just kind of, I guess, reaching out and trying to feel... Yeah, hope and optimism and connection again. Yeah, so totally. in that way, it is a nice time to have to have a record coming out. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like yeah, everyone you know takes in music different ways. Whether it's pulling out an old record or going on a, a masked singing competition, you know, everyone <laughs> kind of handles these things differently. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, I I do recommend the masked singer option to anyone out there considering it. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> am. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is a pretty big distraction, yeah. Oh, yeah, no doubt, no mm-hmm. doubt. <laughs> towering, towering distraction, that's what we're after. <laughs> so I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music, specifically where it changed from being something that you were watching on TV, listening to on the radio, etc., to clicking over and being, this is something I want to do, I want to sing, I want to play instruments, I want to make music, be in a band, write songs, all that sort of stuff. Can you tell me how music kind of factored into your childhood and your upbringing, and if there was a kind of switchover moment where you're just like, that's what I'm going to do? I don't recall there being a switchover moment. I just remember music as being always an integral part of my being in my world. Maybe it's because I was a loud, obnoxious child who <laughs> sort of sang a lot and just never shut up. I don't know, but I I remember just loving singing. You know, my mother says I was singing before I was speaking. I'm sure a lot of babies do that, but I just loved the sound of my own voice. So I suppose after a while it was inevitable that I kind of could could do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I loved old musicals growing up, Sound of Music, all of all the Julie Andrews stuff, Mary Poppins. That was huge for me mm. as a child and then when I was a little bit older, like 8 or 9, I started performing in amateur musicals in the children's chorus and that kind of became my whole social life, you know, just meeting the cool theatre kids and then having my first boyfriends and stuff while we were in the the children's chorus of Oliver. (laughs) It was those like real formative experiences. Yeah, then I started having singing lessons in high school and just didn't want to do anything else. Yeah, classic. So you grew up like in Brisbane? Yep, I did. Yeah, yeah. So I can imagine it would have been pretty immediate access to music and shows and all that sort of stuff as well. Well, in a, in suburban Brisbane in the 1980s and 90s, we yeah, there were shows that came to town for sure, but I didn't know anyone who had you know, made a living as a singer-songwriter or... Uh, there was my cousin, Annie Lee, who is one of the Kransky sisters. She's Morn Kransky. Yeah, right. And she was always this, like, hysterically funny, brilliant presence at family events. She would come dressed up in character to, like, Christmas dinner and just totally have us all in stitches. She still does that. But besides that, I didn't know anyone who'd made a living in the arts. It definitely didn't seem like a viable career path. So, when was the first time you performed live? Like, how old were oh, you? That's funny. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. I, I, I auditioned for The Child Cosette. So, I must have been about eight or nine, I think. They told me that my singing was very good, but that my acting was way too much. <laughs> So I, I didn't get the part because no one wants like an overacting 
starving, begging child <laughs> on stage. Oh, of course, no. If, yeah, if you know lame is. Anyway, it just wouldn't be appropriate. So, I think, yeah, it must have been eight or nine. How long after that, like, was it in, like, were you in, like, bands in high school or anything like that? Was there a moment where you transitioned into, like, you know, like, doing quote-unquote pop music live as opposed to the theatre stuff? I got a guitar when I was about 14 and started writing my own songs. A lot of them were terrible. Nearly all of them were about liking a boy that didn't like me back. A lot of them sort of sounded like bad impersonations of Joni Mitchell, who I was obsessed with. Yeah, Yeah, when I was about 16, 17, I started to go to the Woodford Folk Festival and put my name down on little chalkboards. If you got there early enough, you could could put your name down and then you'd get like a 15-minute slot sometime later that day. And that's where I, yeah, sort of got my first experiences performing and started to... I don't know, started to realise that, oh, there might be something to this. So people started to f- kind of follow me around and ask me where, when my next chalkboard was. And I, my audience started to grow and grow just within, you know, this week-long music festival. And, yeah, wow. Um, it was a re- big formative kind of influence for me. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long after that do you actually forge into, like writing and recording and and all that sort of stuff like do you have any bands before you know like you start making music under your own name or is there any other little projects and bits and pieces yeah i was in a band called elsewhere Mm -hmm. with my boyfriend at the time of course so that's that always ends well oh of course um real fleetwood mac (laughs) situation yeah yeah and we recorded an ep that was my first time in the studio yeah i learned a lot in that band and we played quite a lot of shows I broke up with that guy and the band broke up. And by that time, I kind of had just the beginnings of my solo career. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you were the lead singer in that band? Yeah. So, like, did any of those songs kind of, like, transition over into your solo stuff or was it kind of very separate? Like, what kind of style of music was it? I don't think any of the songs... Oh, actually, there's this one song called Nothing Will Be Missed that I... I kept performing for a while and actually my mother still requests it all the time but I haven't sung it for years and maybe I'll dig it out and resuscitate it at some point but sort of indie folk music just two acoustic guitars yeah, yeah yeah classic classic was there an official like first quote-unquote Kate Miller Heidkey show like when you were starting out this proper solo career kind of in earnest there must have been and I I think it was probably at the Troubadour in Brisbane, which is now called Black Bear Lodge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great venue. Yeah. Oh, man. So, you would have been playing a bunch around the valley, like, you know, a lot of tiny little bars and stuff like that around that point. Yeah, yeah. Those Ricks, like the obligatory gigs at Ricks oh, and Oh, God, yeah. The zoo. <laughs> Test your back somehow. <laughs> God, things would, yeah. So different. I, you go to the valley now, and it's scary. Yeah, um, but there was a there was a real scene back then, and it was really it was quite supportive. Yeah, for sure, for sure. What do you remember about the first time that you went out on tour? Was that in support of the EP, or was that not until the leave? <laughs> oh my God, I've all these questions. I've never uh, answered these questions before. It's been so long since I thought about it. But I went just when you said that. I just had this flash of my mother because. So, my song, Space They Cannot Touch, started to get played a lot on Triple J. Yep. And, um, but, I, you know, I didn't have a manager or anything at that point. 
And my mother literally just got out the phone book. It must have been back then, like, I don't know, 2005 or six. Yeah, yeah, and, I think um, it was five, yeah. started to <laughs> call every venue in Melbourne and just ask them if they'd have me play there. And eventually the Cornish Arms said yes. So that was my, my gig. And, like, my mum showed up with <laughs> six of her friends or something. And, <laughs> yeah, that was the first, the first tour. I think we probably played at the Vanguard in Sydney. And oh, yeah. It was just, you know, really, really small and gradually kind of built up over time. Yeah, yeah. Was that you just playing by yourself or was that with the transport guys? Oh, my God. I can't remember. I think I, I think I had, I think I would have had those guys with me. I would have at least had Kia with me. But yeah, no, yeah, that's right. In the early days, we have them with me, and then they'd do a transport gig like later that night or on another night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some classic double agent (laughs) shit. That's what you're after. (laughs) And our audiences definitely did not cross over, so that wasn't a problem. Oh no, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you wanted. That's totally it. Yeah. Oh man, I remember that. I remember that vividly. Like, yeah, because I I was one of the few people in that Venn diagram. I lo- yeah, I love that first so EP, cool. and I love transport. That's so, so yeah, that was my shit. I know. Yeah, yeah and God, you haven't aged a day. It's oh, amazing. stop it! <laughs> <laughs> Get out of town! <laughs> oh my goodness. Things obviously really, really pick up circa Little Eve. You know, there's the aria performance and, you know, you're kind of elevating up to the next level as a performer. But, you know, you're still relatively young. You're like, that's a lot to kind of take in at that point. Like, what do you remember about ascending from that next level, moving from, you know, the smaller rooms up to more theatres and, and that sort of stuff? Look, it's, it's probably one of my many flaws but was sort of when I look back I just often kind of think about what I'd do differently or yeah, yeah do, sure. uh, focus on the the regrets and I, I do feel I don't think I was in my early 20s I was probably in my mid-20s I think and um, yeah 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 but I still felt totally green and totally out out of my element I think you know in retrospect way too deferential and l- sort of trusted other people too much and I probably should have trusted myself a bit more. But having said that, you know, it was surreal. And yeah, those moments like the Aries, it's just, it doesn't feel like it's really happening to you. It's just yeah, something yeah. that you've kind of like pictured for so long. And it's it's like moving through a dream. What about going, I guess, taking your music out of Australia and, you know, getting to perform out of the country for the first time like do you have any specific memories of of getting to take your music over to you know the US and Europe and things like that was that kind of a a kind of a fish out of water experience for you or did it feel kind of natural to kind of translate what you were doing here and taking it elsewhere well by the time we sort of really gave it a crack overseas I had been doing this in Australia for a few years I was asked to open for Ben Folds on his US tour it must have been in, I think, 2010. At that point, I'd never really played just as a duo with Kia. It had always been full band shows, but we couldn't afford to take the whole band over with us. And yeah, yeah. So we just arrived, it like you know, in, somewhere in the Midwest yeah. of America, and played this this show, and and ended up on the road with Ben Folds for probably hundreds of shows. I'd say, like we t- we toured the US with him two or three times and the UK and Europe then eventually Australia and then with Ben Folds 5 and over that time just seriously kind of honed what we did as a duo and started to like just explore 
the potential of that in terms of dynamics and yeah, yeah. that was kind of a, another formative time of course yeah and that's obviously a big deal for you know an artist you you obviously hold in in such high regard as well like i know you're saying on from above and you literally name check him on the night flight record as well you know there's you know obviously a lot of history there so i can imagine it meant a lot to you know kind of be in that presence you know it's it's that kind of thing and just like fuck if like teenage me knew i was doing this like holy shit yeah it was it was totally like that and he's just uh, like i have so much admiration for him as a musician now just uh, he's seriously gifted and he's totally outside the box and he comes up with something new every night i mean the whole rock this bitch premise where he comes up with an improvised song live in front i mean that's kind of like uh, it just terrifies me even thinking about it but watching that happen night after night was like a truly transcendental experience and yeah, huge learning yeah, curve. For sure, for sure. Moving on from there, you know, kind of going into that era of Fatty Gets a Stylus into Night Flight and stuff like that. Like, Fatty was particularly a fascinating era. You know, this, it, it felt like a this equal and opposite reaction to everything that you had done musically prior to that. Like, for, for you, was that album and that kind of cycle just a matter of kind of just getting it out of your system and trying to really explore what you could do. I would like to take more credit for it, but I I have to, you know, be honest and say that that project was largely driven by Kia. Yeah, he, yeah. I guess he had definitely had something to get out of his system. Like he was kind of at the point where he was really over just being like my backup band and, right, and yeah. sort of having to express everything in all of his kind of immense and multi-dimensional talent through me you know and I I can't scratch all those itches for him and yeah yeah so it was like he had this vision and we were living in London at the time and he just worked up in the attic just day after day sort of just had one of those really fertile creative periods where he was I think is probably the happiest I'd ever seen him and then you know we were just mucking around with these songs and I was trying to disguise my voice. At the time, we were trying to uh, deceive Richard Kingsmill, who <laughs> had he like because Kate Miller Heidke had been blacklisted from Triple J, and we were sort of it was like a vengeance project to try to like, <laughs> sneak onto onto the radio um, incognito. Sadly, that idea fell at the first hurdle when the pub, when the radio plugger refused to lie for us. So <laughs> we should have seen that coming. Oh man. <laughs> I, I really thought those paper mache masks would have worked. <laughs> yeah, well, no, they would have. They would have. But like, of course, you know, yeah. you can't you can't ask your publicist to like put their whole career yeah. on the line and tell just like a blatant <laughs> lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just imagine just pulling their heads off like in Scooby Doo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it's uh, funny. You would have gotten away with it too. I, I, I reckon we would have, and I. But and like interestingly enough, you know, vengeance can be a powerful creative motivator in that way. Oh, for sure, the, for sure. The, like it, it, it definitely ended up worth doing anyway. I mean, it, it's still I think a great record, and we still yeah. It's weirdly, you know, that the opening track, which does bear more than a little resemblance to a jingle, has been you know used on lots of ads and stuff around the world. And yeah, yeah, kept us going at particular moments yeah totally totally i guess one of the other main parts of the 
2010s is you exploring different mediums as well, you know, going into musicals and going into theatre and stage and, and that sort of stuff. Like, as a performer, like, does your mind shift contextually from project to project? Like, do you go into different albums or projects or, you know, theatre things or whatever else with different mindsets or is it always kind of a level playing field for you? Oh, no, it's very different each time. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's why it's so stimulating and so liberating, actually, just getting to kind of leave myself behind and, yeah, especially pretending to be someone else on stage or writing from the perspective of someone else. It's so, yeah, it's freeing. What do you feel were some of the the highlights for you? Like, do you remember getting out there and, like, doing a musical for the first time or, or seeing, you know, the rabbits perform for the first time or something like that that just kind of gratified the the whole experience and the whole process of, of building up to those moments? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that flashes most vividly in front of my eyes when you say that is just the opening night of Muriel's wedding in, in Sydney for the Sydney Theatre Company. Because you, I mean, even yeah, in yeah. On, in the rabbits, I ha- I was on stage, so I mean that was still electrifying, just being part of that whole process, and and especially the first zitz probe. It's called a zitz probe when you get to hear the band or the orchestra play the arrangements for the first time. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. Just you know, total tingly moment. But with Muriel's wedding, obviously, I didn't have to be on stage, but I still had, you know, the stakes were still hugely high for me, and I. I was still like living and breathing every moment. The cast used to make fun of me because I couldn't help but like mime along every single lyric they were singing because I just have to <laughs> like breathe with them. But because I wasn't on stage, I did get to drink three or more champagnes before it even started. <laughs> so that was like, that was, yeah, one of the most unforgettable experiences ever just getting to sit in the crowd and watch that I think particularly because it like it had been the culmination of such a lot of work like I think you know years of work which is actually still still ongoing but probably the definitely the biggest project I've ever worked yeah no doubt and you know you've taken your performance to so many different places whether that's you know just the duo performances with with you and Kia, you know, doing the full band stuff again with uh, friends of the show like Nicole Brophy and previous guests of the show, Mr. Darling James O'Brien, <laughs> like a bunch of wonderful, incredible musicians. Obviously, you know, getting to perform on TV and, you know, being on top of a, like the largest dress that literally anyone has ever seen. You know, there's, <laughs> there's a real spectrum when it comes to kind of Kate Miller Heidke performances that I've always found so intriguing and like... I'm I'm curious as to what you get out of each. Like, is is there at this point in your life like a, a preference? Like, do you prefer things more stripped back? Do you prefer being up there in more of a communal band setting? Do you prefer those big outlandish kind of massinger Eurovision moments? Like, where does it all kind of land on the spectrum for you? I what I love is novelty, actually. Yeah, um, right. And variety. I, if I had to to choose, you know, it would be making live music with mm. people I, you know, admire and love on stage. I think the the Masked Singer and the and even Eurovision, you know, w- w- they were fun and definitely sort of electrifying and exciting, but o- almost a little bit too much for me to handle and I I don't know, I felt like a sort of a cog in a machine whereas 
when I'm on stage singing my own stuff and I get to tell stories and kind of take people on a journey, I guess I feel a bit more in control and a bit more at home, like a, a bit more understood. Yeah. When we're starting out as musicians, performers, all that sort of stuff, like, and especially when we're young and first getting a concept of what music is, you know, like, we're, we're all raised on, like, rock biopics and documentaries and stuff like that, and, you know, that can be a very idealistic thing, but you see these moments in people's careers where it's just like they'd finally made it, quote-unquote, and, you know, as kind of idealistic as that might be, I feel like every musician, deep down, one way or another, has those moments for them themselves, whether it's getting to play a certain place, tour to a certain country, play with a certain artist, you know, have someone acknowledge what you're doing on a, on a bigger scale or anything like that. There are moments, you know, like we were talking about with Ben Folds before, like, you know, like thinking back to what Teenage U would have thought about, you know, getting to do stuff like that. Like, for you, like, are there any things that kind of come to mind across your career where you're just like, I can't believe I got to do that? Yeah, there are. I guess probably playing Coachella was one. Playing oh, the, sure. the Sydney Opera House, like one yeah, of our yeah. final gigs that, well, late last year. You know, the big room at the Sydney Opera House, it's just, it never stops just being incredible that I'm even allowed to, you know, set foot backstage there. Yeah. So when I was performing at Metropolitan Opera, The Death of Klinghoffer, that was another sort of pinch yourself moment, not just because like I was actually on stage singing a role at the Met, which is arguably the most sort of famous opera house in the world, but the particular show that we were doing had provoked this controversy and this furor, which was sort of like taking New York by storm and uh-huh. we were on the cover of every like tabloid magazine and everybody was talking about this controversial opera that dared to humanise Palestinians by having them sing about their feelings on stage. And we had protesters outside every night. You know, I had to sort of fight through picket lines to, (laughs) to get to my dressing room. And that was like just one of those, you know, you feel like you're truly at the centre of the universe. Wow, that's fucking that full on. Do you feel like, you know, so many years, like, you, you know, it's been like, like you said, like 15 years since Space I Cannot Touch came out, you know, you've gotten to do all this stuff over the years and, you know, obviously project the trajectory of what you're doing has kind of changed and recalibrated, you know, year by year, album by album, tour by tour, etc. Do you feel like the motivation to get into music and become a performer and all that sort of stuff, do you feel like that's still kind of in the back of your head when you're making new music, playing shows again, all that sort of stuff? Or do you feel like, you know, that's kind of similarly kind of shifted and changed as you've gotten older over the years? I think when I first started, I was just so in love with songwriting and everything kind of had its own momentum. And I was sort of just felt like riding, I was riding a wave. Yes, making lots of small decisions along the way, but almost like a sort of a spectator to my own kind of life and career and and I think as I get older and and feel like I'm more cognizant of how lucky I am to get to have longevity in this notoriously tough business particularly as a woman in and I'm now in my late 30s and there aren't too many older female role models in particularly in this country you know, I guess I'm just a little bit more consciously 
aware of how lucky I am and also, sure. yeah, uh, you know, lucky enough to have the ability to say no now a lot more than I used to. And, and so I get to actively kind of choose projects, things that are going to challenge me or nourish me, things that scare me, yeah. yeah, or just material that I believe in. And so that's a good position to be in. And I guess too, like, you know, I've also just got that unfortunate character trait of never really being happy with anything I've done. And so it's this sort of eternal quest to like be better next time, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay, we'll wrap it up here. But before we do that, I ask this of all of my guests. And now it is your turn, Kate Miller-Hardke. I want to know about the best and worst shows that you have ever played. Can definitely think of the worst one. That's a good start. Quite easily, I mean, yeah. there's a few. <laughs> there's a t- one. Well, well, yeah. One. One of them would have been at. Oh, it was called Pyramid Rock. Oh, the yeah. festival doesn't oh, exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was on New Year's Eve, and we. I think we were playing it at sunset, and by that point, it really, truly had deteriorated into like a badly debauched. I mean, people were just going insane during my gig. There were. There were just about 50 wheelie bins getting knocked over that I could see into the crowd. And there was a guy uh, right up the front, like on someone else's shoulders. And he had his shirt off and he just had suck me Kate written in massive letters on his his chest, which kind of made it like hard to concentrate. But that's not the worst (laughs) gig we've ever played because like we were quite, you know, we were that was we could kind of laugh at that. But. The worst one we played was a bit earlier, I think my first ever tour to Tasmania and it was with a new promoter and he booked us a gig in Lauderdale, which is a quite a small town in Tassie and basically method of like <laughs> promoting the event was that there was like a, a regular clientele at this bar right. or pub and they were all there playing pool at like 6.30, a lot of them are in high vis yeah. and you could tell that, you know, it was their, like their regular haunt that they came every day after work. But he was this kind of new promoter in town and he was there to shake things up a bit. So he basically went around to all the pool tables and asked like 20 big burly dudes in high vis um, oh no. for $15 if they wanted to stay because it was $15 cover charge. And they were like, what the fuck are you on about? I'm not giving you fucking $15. Eventually they did because they had to, but they hated me so much before I even <laughs> set foot on stage. And, and, can't can't yeah, picture we, why. <laughs> we played, I think we got through about three songs. It was just, but it was really demoralizing and the crowd were like, it felt like they were going to riot. So... I just oh we just had God. to leave the stage and then Keir Keir <laughs> stayed on stage and he played the gambler. He's done a lot of covers bands in his time and he could read the room and so he started, you know, you gotta know when to hold him, know when to fold him and all of a sudden this, the room was just right there. Like they just loved him. <laughs> Fuck. And that was the end of uh, the gig. <laughs> was that the night Frankie Walnut was born? <laughs> I think Frankie Walnut was born long, long before that. <laughs> But he d- he just understood what that room needed at that yeah, particular yeah, yeah. time. Yeah. I couldn't meet their needs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was big of you to understand that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
my God. It's just self-preservation. Oh, my Lord. All right. Well, let's bring it home. What's the best show you've ever played? I was going to say the the Muriel's wedding opening night because I didn't actually have to play it myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that doesn't count. There's there's been so many like uh, it's it is really hard to to narrow it down. I mean, like obviously the night of Eurovision was pretty <laughs> exciting. I mean, that was yeah. But I was probably too too terrified in a way to like to truly enjoy it. I was um it was a, there was a lot of pressure on that gig. Of course, we yeah, we yeah. did get to play the like the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, the Grand Old Opry. And yeah, there's something about that space, just like the history of it. You know, you're walking mm. past posters of Dolly Parton in the hallway and it's magical. There's certain spaces and old theatres just, they they do have a, a spirit that's undeniable. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to say. Yeah, for sure. I love that. I love that. Kate, you have a new album. Yeah, I do. It's called Child in Reverse and it's coming out very soon. Excellent. I'm very, very much looking forward to it. But in the meantime, Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Really, really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. Absolutely. I'm David James Young and all my friends are in Barbets. You've just listened to a not-for-print podcast, independent Australian podcasting.